we can't forget the basics, but we can't be stuck in the past, right? I think that was the, I think is my biggest thing with CAF nutrition and management right now is that things are changing and things that we did might not be the most, well, was corrected to its time, but we are changing, especially we are understanding the importance of, you know, how the investment on that 100 days are fundamental to the success of that animal throughout life. A whole new era of communication in the dairy industry is coming. Now you have the brightest minds of the global dairy industry right in your pocket. And what's best? You can listen to all of them while driving to a farm, traveling, or running errands. It's never been this good, and it's never been this simple. The Dairy Podcast Show is only possible with the support and trust of innovative companies like Ivonic. We are sciencing the global food challenge. Victus Transition from DSM Animal Nutrition and Health can help your cattle get the beta carotene they need to improve fertility. R Yeast 40, ruminal and intestinal double modulation by ICC Animal Nutrition. Exelite by Protecta, a novel product for the management of hypocalcemia. It's uncomplicated excellence. Fibro Animal Health Corporation. Healthy animals, healthy food, healthy world. Welcome to the Dairy Podcast Show, a weekly podcast where you'll find cutting-edge insights and everything that's working in the global dairy industry. Our Yeast 40 is a natural biotechnology from ICC designed to boost the health and productivity of animals under challenging production systems. Our Yeast 40 performance is supported by an unique processing technology that results in a pure product containing high levels of beta-glucans, MOS and yeast metabolites. These factors combined promote the ruminal and intestinal modulation, helping the animals to reach their full potential. All right, well, welcome everybody to this episode of the Dairy Podcast Show. My name is Gail Carpenter. I'm the State Dairy Extension Specialist for Iowa State University. I'm joined today by Dr. Joao Costa, um, who comes to us from the University of Vermont. Uh, He's an associate professor at the University of Vermont. Uh, Previously, he was an assistant professor at the University of Kentucky. Uh, He did his PhD at the University of British Columbia. And that's about all I have for a bio, Joao. So do you want to fill us in on what brought you into the dairy industry, what you did before you started uh, your PhD, and and some of the, what your position looks like right now at, at Vermont? Definitely. So first, thank you very much for having me here. It's always a pleasure to talk a little bit about what we do. Uh, and yes, like I've been now, it's weird to think, like almost 20 years around the dairy industry. Uh, I come from Brazil and doing my, doing my undergrad, I started to work with uh, dairy farms, did a lot of extension projects there. And that led me to come to Canada to do some research at that time on feeding behavior and especially pasture management, like pasture feeding behavior or grazing behavior. And then that actually led into the research of looking at feeding behavior development of calves, nutrition of dairy calves. And now since, well, since I became a professor and now a lot of like on-farm management based on data that was feeding behavior data and it like kind of expanded to pretty much precision technology data. So that's uh, that integration between dairy management, calf, well, calf and 
cow nutrition and especially precision technology tools. It's the center of our my research group. That's what we are doing, and especially now, right, the field that is growing crazily. So some some research related to animal behavior, and especially animal welfare science, but more and more precision nutrition and on-farm uh, decision based on data. It's what we've been doing. So at Vermont right now, are you mostly research then? Do you do any extension work or? Yes. So, well, I'm not, I don't, I don't respect my DOI very much. <laughs> like I, I never had actually an extension appointment, but I still do a lot of extension, a lot of connection, applied research with dairy farms that end up being uh, connected to extension. But my appointment is majority research and some teaching and obviously, as most of us, a little bit of service. Yeah, yeah, or a lot of bit of service, depending on exactly <laughs> the DOI low on service. But yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so precision feeding dairy calves. What does that look like? Are you talking about milk replacer? Are you talking about starter? Are you talking about a little bit of both? What does that? What do you mean when you say precision feeding and dairy calves? Yeah, so both, right? Like I think, well, we'll talk about calves and cows. I think there is a lot of uh, discussion on how to separate the animals and feed the individual instead of the group. I think like traditionally, there in nutrition, we have been in that quest, right? Of feeding the best animals that are there. We have, well, groups, the, our groups are increasing in number more and more. We are formulating diets sometimes to thousands or, or even sometimes more than thousand, right? Like, uh, <laughs> like 10,000 cows at once. And how you get data to integrate that to well, de- to diminish the variation that goes between what is needed to what we actually feed, and especially when we think about formulated, delivered, consumed, and digested, right? How we can integrate data to make changes and make sure that we are feeding those animals uh, correctly. So this is kind of the theory, but when we think on practice, is that like, especially now with, well, I will use robots as the, or voluntary milk systems as a great example, right? That we are able to deliver especially high value additives to single animals, being able to formulate feed tables. And especially like on my side, especially on the research, is like trying to understand which animals need those high value additives, which when can we make changes? Can we actually use the data that comes from the precision technology to identify those animals and come in with corrective action, right? Like, uh, so a great example is that, like, can we identify cows that are not eating enough or not ruminating enough and come in with a bolus, for example, come in with some preventive action of those animals and more and more, I think, develop some of those early interventions for calves and cows. Yeah. Yeah. So where's the opportunity... Uh, for some of that precision technology in calves. I mean, robots are kind of obviously auto feeders is really, you know, there's so much data that comes out of those auto feeders. Are we talking with calves? Are we talking activity monitors? Uh, rumin- uh, would you use a rumination monitor on a calf? What what What's the opportunity that we have here? That is a very good question because, well, the cow, that's why I use cow example because I think it's more commercially available and my group and others, but our group, my group and my team, we did a lot of research trying to look, right? Like, can we actually implement some of this precision technology on young stock? 
uh, there is the obvious automated feed research that is like, you know, with automated feed and the behavior that it collects, uh, there is a lot of possibilities, especially you know, automatize the winning, automatize some of the interventions through the automated feeder. But even more and more we have moved, well, we continue with the automated feeder that is almost like a robot, right? You are able to feed each individual more and more, especially formulate diets that is for that group of calves or the, that type of animal. If, especially if we have different breeds, different genetic values, different uh, colostrum outcomes and things like that that we are able to do so. But also now where we are very interested is like, can we actually use data, farming pure and precision technology data to understand the calves that will go through weaning more easily, that we will eat more solid feed and with that kind of like change the management. We are still with very few commercially available precision technology for calves, but there is a lot of research, right? A lot of prototype, a lot of adaptation from even adult animals. And I hope that that's a field that will grow immensely in the, ne in the near future. Could you even see, uh, so I know we talk about groups and being able to manage cows or calves in groups. Are all calves going to do best weaned at the same age or is there opportunity even to talk about calves like that are more you know they may be ready to wean at six weeks or you might want to wait a little bit longer on a certain group is that something that that we can kind of work towards maybe and make that a little bit more individualized so is uh interesting to talk about because we did a couple experiments looking at well weaning calves at based on feed intake weaning calves based on just odor precision technology-based data, and obviously always with success, right? And every time I present that to farmers, they always say, like, that's what we did 30, 40 years ago, because if we had a slow doer, like if we had a calf that was not eating, a calf that did, a, you know, had two or three diarrhea bouts, where the calves that stay longer on milk, and we lost a little bit of that ability when we expanded our groups to our, our systems to hundreds, maybe thousands of calves, right? But when first with automated feeder, yes, the answer is uh, some of them even came with, uh, are coming with algorithms that can be based on how these calves are drinking milk and especially their activity level to decide how, how much or how long the pre-weaning period are. But I really think that that is a major thing when we think that milk is so expensive. It's such a valuable resource, not just expensive, but, and that's why we did a lot of this automated weaning. And we, I really think that we can separate the calves very early on. With 30 days, we'll be able to decide what happened to some of these calves. And together with that, even, right, like some of these calves need some intervention to in my opinion, to start the solid feed intake the correct way. So utilizing bolus of lactase-based, you know, bacteria. I think we have a great opportunity to use better milk or change a milk replacer formulation through time that we are not using it. Like, you know, 
decrease maybe the fat on the last few weeks. So those calves are, are more hungry and looking for the start. I think we have a lot of opportunity to create, right? Things that are based on the science that we have already, but we are not able to implement on farm mostly. And I think that that's where technology can come to help. Is there a critical mass of size that a farm needs to be to really start experimenting with some of this? Well, that that is, and I will say that you first answer the question, I say what I think, but it's like, yes, that is, I think, a major hurdle that we have now is how to, you know, forever, even us, right? We spend decades telling like how simple things have to be to work on a farm. You go to like extension meet, you go to training staff. We always say like, let's make it as simple as possible. One, one plus one equal two, so farms will actually be able to do. No complex SOP. And then we are here talking about, I don't know, base all of these on data. And that is a major hurdle, especially when we talk about cows. With cows, a little bit different because we are talking about, you know, more money, more uh, output. So sometimes it's able, we are able to do so. But what I really think is that we can do most of it automatically. I think that's where we should get to. And I spend a lot of time trying to figure out how we can create techniques and algorithms that it could be done automatically, right? That no, you don't need to go there and look at start the intake from every from 200 calves to decide who should be wind, like the, you know, the, the feeder by itself would know if it was an automated feeder, but even if it was a calf start or something like a, a tank that you go by a row, that we, we could have data to say those 20 calves are eating enough as we set up on an algorithm that we can decrease from now and just feed less, less until they are winning. I think we have a lot of opportunity and the same thing for cows, right? Much mm-hmm. more actually for cows. Yeah. Like yeah. Move from that blank treatment to the, to the intervention based on data. Are there, so... With calves in particular, there's so much data that comes out of those auto feeders. What are your key metrics that you kind of look for? If you're looking for problem calves or calves that are doing well or poorly, what are some of the key uh, key data points that you look at with, with those auto feeders? Yeah, and I think it has three levels. One is the daily level to even un- understand if are the calves eating well and is there any one here deviating from normality and maybe is starting to become sick. And I think that more and more, actually, that is commercially available and some of the algorithms work really well, making at-risk lists, right? Like, so you get the calves that are a little bit out of norm and then you are able to to do that. So that is a, a daily data, right? Are my calves eating? Is there anyone that might be becoming sick? More and more what farms are doing is really trying to understand what is going on in the big picture, right? Like, are my calves drinking enough milk throughout the pre-weaning period? Do, how many visits do I get? Uh, especially sickness, when my alerts are happening. Is it at 7 to 10 days? Is it 14 to 21? Is it like, you know, more pneumonia-like or BRD-like at the at 40 to 50. So that is a second, uh, I think, data that people are using more and more. And the third, and I think very important that people are doing is like, what happened when it gets too hot, when it's too cold? 
is my ventilation working during the summer? You know, if we do, when we clean, when we don't clean, making some of these questions that actually you are able to do so. However, there are farms and farms, right? You go to farms, they know everything. What is the drinking speed? How many visits? How many calves? And some farms that use the automated feeder or even some of this technology just as a milk feeder, right? Just as a replacement of someone coming with, with milk. Yeah. Do you have, and I think you're going to say no, I think you're going to say it depends, but do you have like a recommended uh, uh, feeding level? For, for calves on, on auto feeders. So to give a little bit of context of why I ask about that, um, I think one of the benefits of auto feeders, and, and maybe you can tell me if you agree or disagree, I think one of the benefits of auto feeders tends to be that we can feed calves more to that natural cycle of, of you know, fewer, uh, or, or sorry, more meals, but they're smaller meals. And that's kind of how, how she's been uh, that's how she would suckle on her on her dam if she was on her dam, and then we can also do that step down at the end too with the auto feeders. So I think that that's some of the that's some of the benefit of moving to an auto feeder is that we can change not just our technology um, and what we can monitor, but we can also have an impact on 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 her um, on her actual nutrition management. So. So do you have like any any recommendations for producers that are moving to auto feeders like like targets for number of visits or or number of meals or or how much milk they should be drinking or what's that step down should look like? Well, you first right because I was going to say it depends, but okay. <laughs> I've worked in extension enough that I know that it always depends. Yeah. <laughs> no, but depends on the objective. But right. before I even will say that is still to this day, right? I think the two things that move, well, there are three things that move farms generally to the auto, like to the auto feeders, to the milk feeders. One is the ability to be able to give more milk to calves without increase, uh, you know, feeding times and especially labor and things associated with that. It's like not easy to deliver 10, 10 quarts of milk for a calf, you know, or three times per day. The second one, it is the animal welfare plus all the benefits associated with group housing. And then if you go to group housing, your ability to feed calves uh, individually, we have options, but normally it's associated with automated feeder. And actually more like the biggest one that comes with that is the labor change, right? You don't, it's, it's becoming harder and harder to finding people yeah. to wash bottles and to fill bottles mm -hmm. and walk when it's now being in Vermont, right? Like when it's minus 25 and has three feet of snow outside and you have, I don't know, a hundred hutches to feed. So that I think is the, the three metrics. Talking about milk feeding, uh, I will not say that I have a, a full recommendation. One thing that that is, is that group housing doesn't work with restricted or what we call conventional milk feeding strategy to calves, right? So if you're going, if the farm or like you're making that decision to do uh, your management with a group housing, we are talking on higher allowance of milk because of many things, but including cross-sucking, right? You, you need uh, that at least like seven, eight liters average full allowance throughout time. So I even like to be higher than that, but at that I think would be the bottom, the bottom line. And 
Yes, I think that like visits, especially, you know, like visits per day is highly associated with the settings that you put on the automated feeder and how many calves are there per, per nipple. And so we try to keep that like 12 calves per nipple uh, max and looking there at like four or five visits per day minimum. I think would be a good terror show to be used on farms, right? We see like what we're really looking for is like that seven to 10 visits. That is what a calf generally would do in nature and is what they do when they don't have a lot of restriction on the automated feeder. But I think like bringing, a, I think four to five would be a good, a good bottom benchmark. If you are below that, that's when I think problems and troubles start to happen. Yeah. You mentioned cross-sucking in there uh, and the importance of, of enough volume of milk to kind of manage some of that. Are there other things that we can do from either the nutrition side or the behavior side, the facility side? What are some good practices for producers who want to who have issues with cross-sucking and want to try and minimize that in their group housing? So, well, if, if I would talk about automated feeders and then non-automated feeders, right? But the automated feeder bringing down the minimum allowance per visit, it's a major one. Just make that calf being, you know, the milk being available to those animals. They will, they always prefer the nipple than another calf, right? Another calf is a, is a, a deviation of normal behavior and obvious like uh, something that we want to avoid. Uh, there is a major relationship there with, well, it's fiber, right? I will say that here, translate fiber needs to forage, but doesn't need to be forage either. We can make uh, total diets that are that have forage enough. Uh, and that is a, a major one. Availability of water, that is uh, something that is highly associated as well. And especially making sure that that first 30 to 45 days, those calves have a very high milk allowance and that that is gradual through time. I think those three are the big techniques. And normally one thing that I always like to train farms is to identify that we always think on the aggressor, right? Like the calf that is performing the action as the problem, but normally actually the problem is the victim of it, right? The calf oh. that allows others to be cross-suck. So if it gets to that point, normally what you, you know, the recommended technique, at least that works really well, very anecdotal. I don't think anyone did a research trial on that, is to take that calf that has been cross-sucked and change it in a group of younger calves where he will have a higher social hierarchy and it will not like allow the calves to suck it. Oh, interesting. I haven't heard that one, but that does make sense. Not that we want to victim blame anybody, but. And it, exactly, exactly. And we do that on the feedlot side, right? Like when we have uh, steers that have been mounted, that have been bullied by others, we don't take the ones that are bullying. We take the one that actually is being bullied. So it's the same kind of idea and it works really well. We have done this with like a lot of farms and works well. So I want to uh, follow up on what you were just talking about with fiber and, and forage feeding to calves. Um, even on this podcast, we've had some discussions with folks about when is the best time to start feeding forages to calves. So I know there's a lot of opinions out there. Uh, 
So what's yours? Well, I have a very, a very midway opinion. I really think that we need to start to talk about calf nutrition as a total diet mm -hmm. instead of ingredients. Absolutely. So yeah. generally, when we are talking about calf nutrition, we are talking about like a liquid diet that is completely independent of the calf starter, that is completely independent of the forage. And I think the evolution of our discussion on calf nutrition has to be that we talk about a complete diet for calves, right? That includes whatever comes as liquid, whatever comes as solid, whatever comes in anywhere of the pen uh, that is given, and especially putting the calf uh, in that big discussion, right? Because the calves will perform behavior or feeding behavior, depending on what is shown to them, and especially how we restrict some of these uh, of these components. But when we talk about fiber needs to calves, calves need defective fiber, right? That is that is a given, and uh, especially for physical development of the GI tract, and especially the forest stomach. So there is an easy way to do so. That is with forage, and we need to make sure that the forage it's there with a function that that function is to give that calf enough effective fiber has to be controlled in most of the times. Uh, and, but I'm not the one that says that calves actually need forage as a forage, right? What they need is it's fiber. So if we are able to identify and put that fiber on the calf start on a total diet, that will work the same way if we put it together. Uh, the milk, the high milk allowance give us more room to work with, especially at Libdon, offer of, of forage, right? Of fiber in general, because the calves will like the problem of forage restriction has been that the calf was absurdly hungry by our conventional feeding or our restricted milk allowance, and they would eat more forage than they actually need. When we are giving like high allowance of milk, calves generally will not overeat the, the forage or the fiber. So it's a little bit easier uh, to just offer uh, forage in general. However, and especially I know that like uh, Mike still uh, is there and works a lot with that. We have dis many discussions about it. Talk, I think total diets is the future of our uh, calf nutrition side, right? That we are going to mix the, f the fiber that we need into a testurized uh, calf start or a testurized uh, solid feed. And that's, that's what, what is the future. However, I think like, you know, we have some of those rules that we talk about, right? Like forage to calves should be there on that 45, 50 NDF plus make sure that it's chopped enough that those calves will actually be able to eat uh, that forage instead of being just spending time. And I did a lot of work actually looking at feeding behavior development and calves will start to eat forage at that like 17 to 20 day. That is measurable. Yeah. I think they will nibble before, but 17 to 21 days, if they are allowed, they will start to have like intake that is measurable of forage. And I think like, makes it so much easier for yeah. the calves that are in high allowance. However, I understand the practical, 
you know, problems that it is, especially to offer forage to calves. You have to clean. You need to make sure that it has no mycotoxins. You need to make sure that, you know, it's almost like this. You want the bad forage or like very high NDF, bad, you know, second, third cuts, maybe straw, but you want it to be as clean as possible right. to make sure that that young animal are not going to be affected. So it's contradictory, right? So very good, as I joke, like very good straw without mycotoxin when you live in Kentucky is not easy to find, <laughs> right? So it <laughs> becomes, a, becomes a concern. And I think I think that like if we can and you have option, we should offer five. I, I do that. That's what we do. We have like chopped straw or chopped uh, grass hay with like 50 plus NDF offer to calves since day one. And they they will actually they will follow the rules of it around five percent of that intake from forage by themselves. So the easiest way, right? You don't need to measure it. You don't need to weigh it. But however, those calves have like very high allowance of milk. And I think that that is the big point, right? If they don't have high allowance of milk, we need to make sure that that forage is limited. Like we can control that 5% by hand, right? Not making sure that they don't eat more than that. Right. So are you, uh, when you're, when we're talking about starting to offer some of that forage to calves, are we talking about doing like a TMR, uh, and, and mixing it in? Or are you talking about, um, uh, separate feeding of forages? I do separate, but I'm especially to, to calves that are fed in high numbers, right? Like when the groups start to increase, the problem with mixing anything is that you need to mix a quantity that is enough for the mix, right? Like you can, would be very nice to mix like forage and coffee started on a bucket, but that's, that is not feasible. So if you have enough animals, I would prefer actually to be mixed. I think that, well, Canada uses it a lot. We, we in US don't use it uh, frequently. More and more, I think we are coming in with calf starters that I don't even consider calf starters anymore. I consider them total diets that that fiber red comes within the mix of the calf starter. Mm-hmm. And I think that, that will be more and more prevalent. And, but if like, if, especially on high allowance of milk, I think we have the opportunity to just feed calves uh, individual ingredient, right? Like calf starter and forage uh, separate. Yeah. I want to take a step back, right? We're kind of talking about, uh, you know, as calves get older. Um, but let's talk about when calves are very young. Uh, what are your recommendations for backgrounding calves before they're moving into group housing? How long should they stay individually housed? What should, Are there ways that we can manage those calves? early on that set them up for success once we move them to group housing? What are some best practices with that? That's a very good question. And I, that is no, I think that is no right answer and is very related to farm. Again, I think I'm right. becoming more and yeah. more a nutritionist. No, but I really think that is, that is two factors here. That earlier you do, easier to train the calf and less work you have because having two systems is really hard on a farm, right? If you leave the calf for, you know, there are farms that move from the maternity straight into the group housing 
and works really well. It's really it's easier to train the calves because like the calves will never seen a bottle or anything like that. The feeder is the only thing, or the feeder or the uh, batch milk, or whatever you're feeding, is the only system that they ever seen uh, a milk come from and being fed. However, younger you do, you need to have a better system, right? Like that place has to be cleaner, more all in or out, more concerns on the individual because the age cannot be that like you have to reduce the age between the youngest and the oldest calf. Because if you have a calf that is a month old and the other one is 12 hours, that is not a fair place, right? So that, is, that are the problem. If you do older, and I think older, probably the upper limit that I like to see is like three to four weeks max, the individual to then uh, be moved in. The first thing that is worse is that you have now two systems, right? Half of your calves will be on an individual or something different than your main system. The second one is normally if you want to give more milk to calves through the group housing, through uh, an automated feeder, now you have the first 30 days that are very important to that calf where you might not have that possibility. So that is a big problem. However, if your farm has sanitary problems or especially colostrum management, you are able to avoid that first bout or that common bout of diarrhea that happened between seven and 14 days. And then a lot of farms do that, right? Like they pretty much wait. They all the calves being healthy and doing well, stable at 15 days and put them together. One thing that I'm, especially on larger farms, more and more what we've seen, especially with all in or out, is that farmers are building a hutch system inside of the group pen. Yep. And yeah. having the calves inside. And then the moment that they are all healthy and doing well, even keeping some on, on a hutch a little bit longer, but then you're going removing that hutch until you have a full group, right? So that I think uh, it's a practice that I, I really like and I try to convince a lot of farms to do. But I on generally... If you want to do early, people do at three days, and I think three days works really well uh, with, like, you'll be able to see if that calf is stillborn or has anything that is related to parturition. Uh, but if you want to do late, I think that 15 to 20 days is a very good point because you avoid that first diarrhea that generally is contagious, right? Like if it is contagious, but normally can be contagious. And then you have a calf that already walks well, already do well, and you don't have that many calf to deal on an individual individual level. And I don't like to see more than 30 days first because I don't think make makes sense practically. You're losing all the benefits at that point. You're losing all the benefits, especially the socialization benefits. And most, and we did that, like our research has been 32 days, you already start to see some of those benefits not being applied to the calves that were that long individually housed. So I think that will be a threshold of like three to four weeks. So I know that I talk to producers sometimes who have tried auto feeders and it doesn't work for them or, and, and I've even talked to some producers that, that have gone back, right? To, so they invest in the auto feeders, they can't make it work and they, they kind of move back to, to a different system. What do you think 
it is about certain farms that they have calves that do really well on it and other farms that they just have a hard time getting it going. And I'm talking about good farms too, right? Like, like calves that they do a great job with their calves, but for whatever reason, like auto feeders are not a good fit for them. Well, for, I will talk about many things on that. And that's very common actually has happened men like less and less. And I think it goes through a lot of things. First, we really learned, right? Like we even can go to the robots and say the same. The yeah. robots came, were all stripped down. And now we have probably whatever, double digits of our cows on them. But I think the first one is that a lot of farms look at the auto feeder as a way to solve a problem that was already there. So if you're already struggling with your calves, you didn't have labor, calves were getting sick, they were, and I'm not saying that it's that even putting the blame on them, but they were sold on an auto feeder idea as the solution for a problem that had nothing to do with how you fed your calves. And so generally, even us as an extension group, one thing that I do a lot with farms is like, are you ready for an auto feed, right? Like, is your colostrum management working? Do you have enough milk to feed these calves? Can you, can you clean the auto feeders? Can you control disease on a group setting, right? You need to have early intervention. You need to treat your calves. Like you need to have pen walks pretty much to see who is sick. Like, can you do that? Can you, do you have enough labor? I think the second thing is that we set up most of our individual calf systems based on you see one calf right now and you treat right now and had no pre or post control of that animal. It was mm. a very, the calf didn't drink milk today. We take a temperature, we treat. Mm-hmm. And when we go to auto feeders, you don't have that moment, right? You don't have a moment that the calf didn't drink. A calf is doing something. So it's a big change of approach mm-hmm. to calf disease uh, that needs to be done. The third and very important one is that the hygiene, you, you know, and it happened with bottles, like we yep. still have farms that cannot use bottles like that. They they see a big spike on disease. The same thing to auto feeders, right? That is like a very strict hygiene maintenance that you need to do on those. The same thing to batch feeders yep. that you need to do. And a lot of nipples, a lot of corners, a lot of hoses. And I think that was causing a lot of a lot of trouble. And to be very honest, like in uh, tomorrow, someone probably will call me to to be like, "Oh, Joao, why are you saying this on TV, on on a podcast?" But I think the major thing is that the industry was not ready for such a complex machine in a place that we don't spend a lot of time. So a feed wagon, you spend seven eight hours with a feed wagon on a farm, you learn all the in and out. An auto feeder, you might spend 20 minutes a day and it requires you to know the cloud. It requires you to know a lot of like pumps and hoses, a system, look at the calves, sit in the computer and see if people, the calves are drinking, getting sick or not. And I think lacked a little bit of training, a little bit of support, a little bit of just like, you know what I mean? Like 
is not a $12,000 purchase. Yeah. It is, it is, well, it is a relationship between the company that makes it, the dealership and the farm, like everything else, right? But yep. it's like, if you sell bottles, it's very simple. Again, it's like you fill up this, you deliver to calf, you hopefully you clean. When you're selling an autofeed or you have an autofeed on your farm, that has a lot more complexity to the protocols that you need to do to it. And I don't think people had that understanding and even that time to deal with that many times. Yeah. And it still happens. It's not a, it's not, and I, I'm, I work with autofeed. I think I'm even known to support the autofeed award. But, um, the first question that I do to farms is, why the autofeed? And if the reason is because I don't have time to deal with calves, autofeed are a terrible option to do that. Yeah. Yeah. So what do you think? So, so 10, 15, 20 years down the road, we're still doing this. You're still working in this space. What do you think we're going to be? What do you think that calf industry is going to look like um, in the, in the future as we kind of continue on these precision technologies? So I think the first one, and it's already here and happening uh, more and more, is that we used to raise a lot of animals, and now we are raising the right animals. Mm-hmm. And I think that creates a lot of value on that individual that is there, right? Yeah. Like we understood the genetics uh, that could, that first 100 days, the plasticity of that 100 days would impact that animal throughout life. And I think that is a process that we will not, will not slow down, right? I think more and more we'll see a lot of, you know, a lot of inputs being put on that pre-weaning and post-weaning animal. And I think that more and more in 15 years, we will see uh, additives and technology that right now are not economically viable that will be. Because losing an animal, losing that genetic or making sure that you open up the opportunity to make money with those, you know, breeding other animals uh, will increase. The second one, I think that the labor, and that is not just for the calf industry, right? It's to all industries and affect us the most is that our labor force will not be as available and some of this technology are coming already to replace that right like i was just actually today on a meeting with a company that has been able to go on the milk line identify high somatic cell milk going through the milk line steal that milk pasteurize and deliver to the automated feeder without the intervention of anybody and i think some of this process will be more and more common. And I think that one thing, I hope at least, that we understand the data, like how maintaining and keeping the data early on, it's very important to the industry, to that old animal, right? Like the phenotyping of these animals through life, I think will play a big role. And the technology have like, you know, very connected to it, right? I don't think we are going to pay high schoolers to go there and see how calves behave or eat or drink. Uh, But we could with technology. And I think that data will become more and more important. Well, I mean, I feel like the time has flown by, but we've been talking for a while. Um, Do you have, uh, before we kind of move into our, our three questions that we ask all of our guests, how would you sum up? 
um, some of the advice that you'd give to dairy professionals that are working with calves? What's your what's your big take home for our listeners? Well, I think the first one is that we can't forget the basics, but we can't be stuck in the past, right? I think that was the, I think is my biggest thing with calf nutrition and management right now is that things are changing and things that we did might not be the most, well, was corrected to its time, but we are changing, especially we are understanding the importance of, you know, how the investment on that 100 days are fundamental to the success of that animal throughout life. And I think that is the first one. The second one is that, like, I'm sure has happened already, right? Like what I learned when I was in undergrad, pretty much nothing is applied right now. And I hope that one day Dr. Costa research is wrong again and we find out the right way in another generation and we'll be fine with that, right? I'll be fine to walk on ADSA and they laugh that I was recommending a total diet to calves because we found out that calves needed something different and be able to do that, to understand what people are talking about, the research and the changes are fundamental. I love that. That's a really great way to look at it. Science is never done. No, at all. Yeah. <laughs> I hope that I'm, I hope that I'm not too wrong, but yeah. <laughs> I'm, you hope that you're building on it, right? Not that, not that you're like, Oh, that guy, he, <laughs> Fair enough. That's a good way to look at it. Yeah. It's time for our famous three. The Dairy Podcast Show is only possible with the support and trust of innovative companies like with early detection in health, reproduction, and feeding, SmaxTech future-proofs your dairy operation. Your partner for improving animal performance, Berg and Schmidt, Diamond V, because animal health deserves a healthier approach. AB Vista feed intelligence and targeted ingredients to optimize rumen function. Your partner in improving animal performance, Berg and Schmidt. They provide high quality economical feed ingredients for ruminants, like their well-researched coated nutrients and fat powders that can support cows with additional available energy, which improves their overall health, productive performance, and your cost efficiency. All right, we can go ahead then, I guess, and get into our three questions that we ask all of our guests. And our first one is, what is your favorite dairy-related book or resource? Oh, that is a, a very good question. Well, I will I will first say the obvious, right? Like, I think uh, the classic, Hot Dersman, and some of, like, the website, special Dairy X, some of the extent, Penn State extension, Cornell extension is always a classic way to get informed on some of this. Uh, now, Vermont extension as well, uh, I think is a classic course, way to, yes. to be informed. But I think, like, look, even going forward, and I think this is a big example of that, I think the podcast world, are becoming not just the podcast, but the YouTubes, the material that are people are putting on the internet. And I'm doing a lot of that. Actually, I follow a lot of the, the social media to know you get an intimate relationship, right? With some of these farm tools, with the farmers, with some of us professionals. I think this is, is going to be more and more important because it's beyond the 2,000 words that come on Hot Dairyman, right? You are able to spend an hour on a topic of your interest. Yeah, and you can do it while you're driving to a farm or doing lab work or, yeah, it's uh, 
uh, we can really multitask now a lot more, I think, <laughs> than we used to be able to just with all of the all of the ways that you can get information. So our second question is, what is your favorite non-dairy related book or resource? Oh, that's a, a very good question. I actually, well, I've been for many years following Franz Deval books. I think that's like, if you are a biologist, as we are, right? We are like just one part of biology of the life science. I think that's something that I think that people should read to understand that those animals are there are more than just a machine, right? That transform feed into an output that is milk, that they are there. They have a society, they have a understanding of the world. I think Franz Deval is a very good resource for some of that and very prolific. You can read his books forever because he has 20 of them. Do you have a favorite? Uh, yeah, the newest one. Are animals and is no? Are we smart enough to know how smart animals are? Oh, I'll have to look that one up. Pretty cool. All right. And so our last question is: What sets successful dairy professionals apart from those who are not successful? Well, when we are in an industry that is this dynamic, I think being able to understand the options and being able to to change based on solid evidence is fundamental, especially when we talk about professionals, right? And we are, like, I, I like to say that a lot to my students, to my grad students, even others, is that a lot of things that we are being taught and we are talking about are going to be, are going to be proven wrong. Yeah. And that's okay. Because and we hope that they're proven wrong, actually. Because exactly. it means that we're growing, yeah. Exactly. And that is what is a different industry, right? Like the dairy industry is a different beast. If you want to work on it, being ahead of the time, being on the, like, just getting constantly uh, information is and be able to, to understand that information, make a critical con construction of that information is fundamental. So if you are in the dairy industry, being able to travel, being able to be placed, get new information is fundamental. If not, you'll become behind and then you have much less opportunity than some of them. Well, if people want to look up more about your research and what you're doing, what you're working on, um, some of your outreach, is there, is there any way that people can find you online? Yeah, so actually, I just uh, launched again my extension website. It's literally, well, I think the easiest way is to put on Google UVM Joao Costa. But if not, uh, our profile as well uh, online with the UVM Dairy Science, that is a lot of information. And I, as actually, we have a YouTube uh, channel that I try to put together all the information that we have been creating with talks with podcasts and things that they can find it online as well all right what's your youtube channel called uh joao costa uvm okay. all right very good well joao it was great talking to you today um it was great having a having a discussion about calves and auto feeders and um hope our listeners enjoyed it as much as i did perfect thank you so much for having me here